Okay, when uh, Jed asked me a couple of weeks ago to, to uh, maybe talk about in, in this forum in that sense, he said, can we say something about the biogeochemistry or the geochemistry and the role of geochemistry? And I'm pretty sure you've often heard the term geochemistry with the Anthropocene, notably in the sense of trying to define markers, of trying to find out and to do mass balances of material exchange. How does this impact on, um, on the human behavior? Um, and can we, can we, to some extent, quantify that? And that's where geochemistry basically comes in handy. It's the cycling of the elements between the atmosphere, lithosphere, biosphere, hydrosphere, we use all the elements, of course, natural and otherwise, and look at the cycling. And obviously the cycling, if uh, properly understood, leaves a certain signature. I hope this won't fall down. It's slipping slowly, heating up. Um, and this, this cycling, again, can leave traces. And in the end, if you want to use an approach, a geological, uh, geological approach of defining the Anthropocene, we need to find a marker, as Chiri very nicely explained. We need to find something that's left in the end, in the rock record. The soil record today, maybe, and soils on average are hundreds, thousands of years old, so maybe it's too early to coin the term Anthropocene, maybe not. And that's what I want to illustrate a little bit, is the role of geochemistry. Um, looking at two case examples where I've worked indirectly, not directly thinking about Anthropocene, but where we've realized, oh, this is obviously a human impact that we have and to look at how geochemistry links into that. And so that's, that's what I want to do um, to say out, to, more or less to summarize, oh, this is the course. Um, to more or less summarize two things. One, work on the carbon cycle. One, yes, I've got this. <laughs> oh, put it um, one is work on the carbon cycle because we all know man has influenced the carbon cycle. You're well aware of the carbon cycle in that sense. This is pre-industrial revolution and everything that's grey here is sort of man-made if you want to. It's influenced by, by human activities. And obviously it's this idea of man having influenced the carbon cycle that was the first foundation of saying, okay, as of the industrial revolution, we can see the impact on the atmospheric CO2, its isotopic composition, as well as the concentration, and that's directly used, uh, related to our fossil fuel use. And the use of fossil fuel, and all the statistics, these little diagrams you've seen, McDonald's going up, paper production going up, everything is linked directly to increased energy consumption, which is only satisfied currently by uh, fossil fuels. And as much as we try, the renewable energy is not more than, I think, 5%, even though it's been known for 20, 40, 50, 100 years, renewable energy. And we used it before, of course, windmills, as you nicely showed. So there is an impact, of course, on the, uh, the, the carbon cycle. And um, as I mentioned, that's obviously, this is where Paul Crutzen, I think, first said, okay, let's take this cutoff, where we know the isotopic composition of the atmospheric CO2 is is uh, going away and of course the concentration is going away compared to sort of the Holocene. We said that's the point where we can define the start of the Anthropocene. The rest is the Holocene, nice constant conditions, um, etc. So, but how does this show and does this show in, in the rock record? That's what interests us. And another cycle that I want to quickly touch on is uh, the nitrogen cycle because if you look at the top and the bottom diagram, this is a natural nitrogen cycle with fixation via biological activity. 
And this is the cycle today, the human-made cycle. And this is much more so than the carbon cycle. If you go back to the carbon cycle, the gray parts were small contributions. So it takes much longer even to impact on the carbon cycle. The nitrogen cycle is much more impacted by man. And today, we are the global players for the nitrogen cycle. So I also want to see, show you some example, examples of the nitrogen cycle. And this shows the little blue line here is the biological fixation, the natural fixation of nitrogen. This is the word population, fossil, uh, fossil fuels, and to some extent also the Haber-Bosch process of making fertilizers so that you can feed the world. And the Haber-Bosch process is directly related to fossil fuels because it uses gas basically as a substrate to make our fertilizers. So again, can we see that? And as I mentioned, and because Jade asked me, do you have some examples where you're working on? One of them um, is, for example, in India, where I've worked on Chilika Lake. Uh, they had a problem with the lagoon actually closing in a natural way, um, and with the fish catch in the lagoon going down. And they estimated that this is related to the, the uh, water quality. And uh, so they created, because it was uh, a Ramsar site, they created with uh, World Bank A a, a synthetic mouse to drain what they thought were the poor waters of the lagoon and to establish a nice cycling with the marine system. And it actually turns out that this drain, all it does is it brings in the fish from the sea, and so the fish catch goes up, but the water quality hasn't really changed to some extent, and it's clearly impacted by an influence uh, and increasing population in the region. And so we need, obviously, to do more work on that. Um, but what we did as part of this is not only to look at the present-day situation, but as geologists, um, we go back in time, as Cherry showed. So we're trying to find signals, signals of the impacts on the environment and then we can interpret these signals and say, maybe this was man-made, maybe this wasn't. So as an example, I want to show, of course, what we did here on Chilica Lake by taking a short call and um, analyzing the carbon cycle for it and the nitrogen cycle for it. And you can see everything stays nice and constant for years. This is about, we estimate, two, 3,000 years of history. Everything stays constant up until the very top part. Now, the sedimentation rate increased in the top part, so the top part, in terms of the dating that we have, and I'll show it in just a little while, down to here, we think this is only about 50 years, whereas down to here, this could be about 1,000 years. And it's a problem that the lagoon has, there's increasing silt coming in. Why increasing silt? Because we've changed the land use policies around the lagoon. So much finer material is coming in, and it's quickly closing the lagoon, so it's a man-made impact. Which you can also see that organic carbon has gone up content, so you have actually have more nutrients. Um, isotopic composition has gone up. This is global CO2, which goes down. So maybe are we seeing the, the effect here too? Uh, the percentage of nitrogen goes up, so you have more algal growth in the lagoon, more internal bioproductivity. In fact, that's how we interpret it because the CN ratio also changed, but it changes particularly right at the very, uh, very top of the section. So we have something where we can say this is probably related to the, um, the land use policies. Now, that's the, the situation for organic matter, but organic matter, sadly, as Thierry might also tell you, does not preserve very well. So do we see this in the counterpart, the inorganic matter, which often gets preserved as a carbonate, a solid carbonate, in the rock record? 
And we do see changes, but they start much earlier. We do see changes for the carbonized composition of the carbonates. Um, also going towards lower values, a change in about 1 to 1.2, 1.8 per mole, which is about the change in global CO2. However, we don't think that that's necessarily the only change. Also, the oxygen isotopes change, which is the closing of the lagoon, more evaporation happening, so you're getting to closer, more positive values. The amount of mineral carbonate increases too, notably right at the, at the very top. So we've had more, in fact, many of the ostracod species are very young in that lagoon. We've had more ostracods, in fact, that with the calcareous shells uh, make in in the long run, the fossils that can be used to explain the carbonate record too. So when we date the fossil, we use cesium, which is often used to date also the Anthropocene, or try to date it, because of course it's a man-made um, isotope as such. And so we would extrapolate, if we extrapolate our ages in that sense, our two peaks that we might have here, and this could be more or less the 1950s, and as I said, this would represent about 1950 uh, years of, of development, where we are seeing the changes. And that more or less figures with the development, because this lagoon itself finds itself in, a, in the poorest state of India. The population really only increased in the last 50 years, and with that, the agriculture around it, changed tremendously. They took back mangrove forests around the lagoon, notably, and now it's all rice, rice paddies. There was a period of coconut plantation for world demand and whatever, which used also a lot of fertilizers, and that's probably the biggest problem now is uh, the, the drainage basin completely controls the chemistry of this very sensitive place, lagoon, which is the second biggest lagoon in the world also, so not uh, negligible. So it's clearly human-made impact related to the agricultural activity in that area, but it's more or less, excuse me, wrong direction, but it's more or less related to, to um, man-made activity and agricultural activity. But it's 50 years, it's not the hundred and something years we're seeing as the start of the Industrial Revolution. So it's a local signal, really, rather than the global signal in terms of the changing carbon isotope composition. That's at least how we interpret it. For the nitrogen cycle, I have some examples from home, and because we're in Switzerland, we're here. Um, the impact of man on the, on the uh, nitrogen cycle is also clear in Switzerland. Our groundwater quality is being monitored everywhere. All these are the monitoring stations, more or less on a monthly basis. And you see where the agriculture, the Swiss plateau is important, you have lots of breakouts, excess of nitrate. And so if the nitrate limit goes up, you have problems in your groundwater, you're no longer allowed to use it. And so we were studying why is this so high? Of course, it's related to, the, to, uh, to agricultural practices, but they've been trying to limit that, to limit how much um, fertilizer we use. And also what they're limiting, of course, is the fertilizer used, which is the fertilizer, which is a synthetic fertilizer, the sort of Haber-Bosch <coughs> process, which impacts the nitrogen cycle to some extent. Here you have natural soils, fertilized, not fertilized, basically giving you the same range in nitrogen isotope composition, which is a very nice geochemical tracer to look at what fertilizer are you using. Are you using this fertilizer or animal waste, which means organic fertilizer, the manure and such like. That has a different isotopic composition. If you use both, which is what they generally do here, and actually, as a matter of fact, this is what is being limited, you should change the isotopic composition in your soil of nitrogen, but that might take time because it's an integrated signal and as we say, soils are much older. Anyway, you can use isotopes to look at is this indeed linked to us or not. Everything that has, for example, high delta 15N values is man-made, man-influenced. Everything below that could be natural. 
Um, so again, to get back to this idea, can we get signals somewhere that indicate this is us, and then say as of when was this us? Um, and that's where geochemistry comes in. And you can see for many of the localities we analyzed in the Canton board, one day past our drinking limit of 20 milligrams per liter. Many of them are, are way too high, and many of those that are too high lie in the clearly organic fertilizer field. Um, so this is what we probably also need to do, but if we want to use our groundwater as drinking sources, and many communities do that, and when I started this work on one of the communities, they had to stop using it because for years they've been too high, and finally the, the canton forced them to stop using their groundwater. The lucky thing with many of this organic fertilizers, you also have a process of denitrification which actually lowers your nitrate values. Same thing now in Africa where I was also happy enough to work with a group of students in a region which is hardly known. And here nitrate groundwater problems are also uh, very important even though you have a population density that is what 0.1 or something per square kilometer. The lowest population, population density in the world is in Namibia. So does man have an impact on that? Now, big groundwater aquifers apparently. Um, so we, we wanted to look at that. So we looked at a very dry region, which is of touristic importance. And of course, we wanted to look at man-made influence maybe on the nitrogen cycle. Why man-made? Because we, as tourists, like to take our shower. We need a toilet. And what do they do with the wastewater? There's no treatment. It goes back into the system. But the density is so low. So do we have an impact? Indeed, there's a lot of, of places, all the green dots here, will be past the limit of 50 milligrams per liter, which is higher than in Switzerland, but that's the limit there. And again, if you look at the isotopic composition, it's convincing, yes, there's stuff here which is animal waste, much of it though natural animals, which is the game that is in that area, but it's related to human activities because we give them water, so they all come to the water sources, and they digest their food there, and that's where across the desert sand you have a drainage which then goes into the aquifer. And as big as the aquifer is, with a high nitrate solubility, you have a problem because you pass the nitrate limits, drinking water limits, and you might have a problem. For the surface water, it's not that bad, even though they're fairly high compared to any surface water in, in Europe. But some of the waters uh, that also have high carbon 14. Uh, values, in fact, higher than 100% uh, uh, atmospheric today, um, and they go to thousands of milligrams of nitrate. That's because it's a dry region and nitrate has a very high solubility, so it gets concentrated over time. So a problem, and this is not only a problem here, there was a very nice recent Elements article by John Ludden showing also in, in the River Thames how this goes up, and he causes a gun, a, 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 an explosive problem that might happen, but the values are still very much lower, so you can even drink the thanks water for the nitrate. But for many others, I would not suggest you do that. Anyway, this, but it realizes the same problem. It's the basic drainage basin, which gives you a problem with the nitrate, and the peak is, is coming through. So again, clearly, man has an influence on the nitrogen cycle. And this now brings me to, well, how do we register the signal? And that's where I want to bring up this uh, recent paper, of course, where they discuss that. Geochemistry offers you to bring up signals, to bring up markers, maybe. If you understand the cycling, are we using bomb carbon-14 or cesium? Problem with that, as Thierry nicely said, is decades. So in thousands of years, it's no longer there. So we don't have the evidence. 
oxygen ice top on ice cores or even the gas bubbles and ice cores, we're busy melting them. So we're replacing the Holocene by the Anthropocene by melting the Holocene. <laughs> so maybe we should push back the border as we go in future too, to put the limits somewhere. Um, again, so what, what can we potentially use? And I showed you some examples maybe um, that can be used. What it turns out, the difficulty of deciding is simply uh, the diachronous uh, behavior of it. What the summary, I, as I understand it today, basically is wherever man comes around, he has an impact. But he came to Australia a little later than he was in Europe. So the deforestation in Europe happened much earlier. The megafauna in Australia and New Zealand died out a little later. So it's difficult because you have this local impact. And as we saw also with Chilica Lake and with the other two nitrate examples, um, you do have local impacts, um, and not necessarily the global impact. So do you need a, a boundary that's, that, that waves around? We are living in the present, in the Anthropocene, and so if we say for the past we always use, we use a fixed boundary, a fixed edge. But as Thierry nicely explained, even there, if you're using volcanic eruptions as the extinction mechanism, those volcanic eruptions happened over 50,000, 100,000 years. So we still have time to decide also what we use as a marker in that sense. And this is not really diachronous in terms of geology. And if you want to use a geological definition, this is, this is, uh, this is good. You know, this is precise. <laughs> but of course, uh, I do think maybe if you really want to do it, and I leave it up to you to decide, this is a very nice early study. Uh, 1996, uh, 96, uh, by Burm et al., which I always use in teaching, and that's why I thought of it last night to just quickly bring it up. Can we see this event, and as Paul Crutzen was is the initiator of that, of industrialization in some rock record? And here, I'm not actually looking at a rock record, and they didn't either, because this, these are demo sponges, which is a biological record, if you want to, but they make carbonate. It's like corals making carbonate in the Caribbean Sea, so you're looking at a global signal in the sense that it's one, a marine signal, 70% of the Earth's surface is marine. Secondly, it's apparently, according to them, also transferred from the atmosphere to the sea in that sense. So it's registered in the sea and it's probably a global signal. The reason they say that is if, if they date these, these corals or these demo sponges, it gives you the same curve as the, as the change in isotopic composition in atmospheric CO2. So here we have it fixed in the rock record. The frightening thing I find with this is simply, if you go back to my, which I'm which we're not going to do, to the carbon record, the DIC, dissolved inorganic carbon, is the biggest source, bigger than plants and everything, in the oceans of carbon. And man is changing that. Not only are we changing the CO2 in the atmosphere, and we're changing the CO2 in the atmosphere more so than we're changing this, because, of course, um, only parts of the CO2 actually gets absorbed into the sea, the rest goes in the atmosphere, and only a little bit of the CO2 we are adding is man-made. And yet you can see it in carbon isotope composition, and we see it here in the corals. So maybe this, these corals should be defined as the type locality for these kind of things. And it should be global, so we should see if, if we see it elsewhere. Other global signals could be late, but that's very much local in terms of geochemistry. That's one proposition, again, because you see it nicely also in ice records, the, the change in red uh, in, in lead concentration, which is global because lead happens to be a vaporous element which has a, uh, uh, can, can be in, in vapor form too. 
and therefore globally transfer, because we need to look at the global and atmospheric transfer. The advantage with lead is you can also use isotopes to identify when the Romans started firing up the, the uh, mining activities and using lead. This is from Austria, Switzerland, a, a very nice one, and you can, you can date very nicely using lead isotopes to some extent too, and the changes in lead isotopes, the events, and really put precise ages on these and say, okay, this is the Industrial Revolution, and boom, the lead isotope composition changes. So with lead, you also have the possibility. This is, though, in a peat bog, and peat bogs, organic matter, does not preserve all that well, say. Anyway, so I'll leave it with that. Thank you. The open question is... change in the nitrogen cycle and uh, maybe a second question is why do the denitrifier uh, not increase their, their production why why they do the, the denitrifiers do increase their production but the denitrifiers largely go via the nitrous oxides too as a gas which are also dangerous greenhouse gases so that, that that adds to the problem and in that sense the nitrogen cycle will also add to the global warming just as co2 does Plus, the other thing is simply, okay, it's the whole rotation will change, the bioproductivity will change, and if you have an excess also of, of fertilizers, that's also not good for the plants. You need a certain amount, but not too much, because then you get eutrophic systems, and that's what we're actually seeing in Chilica Lake. It's become eutrophic, and you can see this with the very late uh, CN ratio changes and whatever. So that's where it's becoming eutrophic, even though they're opening it up to the sea, or they have opened it up to the sea, because seawater doesn't really come in. Um, so, and that's why even they, they, in the long term, you, you might change, change your productivity. Yeah. It's changing the Chilica Lake, uh, the topos part, but you have this increasing carbonates uh, linked to ostracods from its uh, lake production? Or well, we looked at the fraction of ostracods, and we get a decrease in the foraminifera and an increase in the ostracods. Okay. And the foraminifera obviously come from the marine system when the whole lagoon was still open permanently to seawater and it naturally closed. They now synthetically opened it in 2002. And ever since then, the fish catch went up from 2,000 tons to back to 14,000 tons. So they're happy. And they're saying it's the internal production, but fish can't breed that quickly. It's just fish coming in from the sea. Do you, do you see an increasing eutrophization uh, uh, on the top? Or? Because if you have all we interpret it as eutrophization at the top because your CN ratios change, which means you have much more algae okay. that are growing, and they have the uh, the um, higher ratios there. Okay, so thank you. Sure.